0: Welcome to the Real Python podcast. This is episode 73. How do you define open source software? What are the challenges an open source project and maintainers face? How do maintainers receive financial, legal, security, and other types of help? This week on the show, we have Josh Simmons from Tidelift and the Open Source Initiative to help answer these questions. Josh does open source ecosystem strategy for Tidelift. We talk about what Tidelift is and how they support maintainers. We also talk about the types of support maintainers need and the barriers that can block that support. Josh also serves as president of the Open Source Initiative. OSI is actively involved in open source community building and education. He talks about how collectives and foundations can be powerful tools in the open source ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Sentry, helping developers see issues that matter solve those issues in minutes, and learn insights to keep their applications running at peak performance. All right, let's get started. The RealPython podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Josh, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I got very excited Your uh, team sort of reached out to me after PyCon, looking to talk a little bit about Tidelift uh, to me as a member of of Real Python, and I sort of turned it around on you guys. (laughs) I said, oh my gosh, I think I really want to talk to you on the show and kind of wake people up to what it is that you do. So maybe we could start there and talk about maybe a little bit of background of the organization and then maybe end that with what, what you do for Tidelift.
1: Yeah, that sounds great. Gosh. So Tidelift is an organization, about a four year old startup that uh, works to do, to pro- provide more assurances to downstream users of open source. By assurances, I mean making sure that, you know, licensing information is correct, that we're on top of security vulnerabilities, that there's a responsible disclosure process. We provide these things in a fairly unique way. We do that by actually contracting directly with maintainers of the open source projects, so we are actually paying open source maintainers to do that additional work on their open source projects to make it uh, more reliable for for their downstream users. There are lots of companies and nonprofits and organizations out there trying to solve the problem of really making sure that open source maintainers are better supported yeah you know there's there's a whole global technology infrastructure that is really built on the backs of open source maintainers and, uh, and a whole lot of them not, uh, not terribly well supported. So that's a yeah. problem we're trying to solve by, by both working with the maintainers directly as well as working with, with their downstream users. So that's what Tidelic does.
0: Yeah. I think there's like a lot of details we can crack open uh, as we continue our conversation, but I think that's a great overview.
1: Yeah. Thank you. And, and so my role in all that as, as Tidelift's ecosystem strategy lead which maybe sounds a little highfalutin but really what it's about is thinking about all of the players in the open source ecosystem and and how we can sort of align the stars align our incentives to make sure that everybody's getting what they need out of it because you know on the one hand we we do want to make sure that downstream users are getting the assurances they need to get ahead of supply chain attacks and and just have confidence in the software they're using. But on the other hand, you know, we also need to make sure that the the maintainers are, are, are well supported in that work and, you know, incentives are not exactly aligned. You know, I, I as a, a downstream user, might really care about knowing exactly the provenance of the software I'm installing and maybe knowing the identity of, of who created the software or having some checksums or making sure that it, you know, the software is part of the reproducible builds program. You know, whatever the assurances that I'm looking for as a downstream user, yeah. the needs that I have are not necessarily aligned with what the maintainer and contributors are are interested in in doing. And so really what I'm asking for as a downstream user often amounts to extra work for the maintainer. Yeah. And unless the maintainer is getting supported in that work, it's difficult to ask them to do more. When they're already doing everything on a on a on a practically volunteer basis
0: yeah that's nice that you can help them kind of navigate that It sounds uh, it's like a hybrid of uh, a developer relations for tidelift <laughs> oh yes in in a sense, yeah absolutely to kind of break open some of the questions I have, you guys have a really nice video I, I just watched on on YouTube that goes into open source and you know kind of what motivates open source maintainers and I, I thought that was kind of a interesting for people that are not developers themselves it might be like a big question mark for them <laughs> you know like right why why do you do this you know and then right how do we uh keep you doing this <laughs> right <laughs> so i think that's really kind of a, a interesting thing that is kind of behind a lot of what's what's happening there and you guys use this term lifters and i, I think yeah. that that might break apart into two things is there a difference between a you know say a maintainer and a lifter or how, how does that break apart
1: oh sure so lifter lifter is the the word we use to describe folks who are maintainers who have like a a contractual relationship with Tide lift okay so uh, so every lifter is a maintainer we wish every maintainer was a lifter but we're still working on that one
0: all right that makes sense so I guess we're going to kind of bounce back and forth a lot. And I I feel like that kind of fits what you do. So, (laughs) um, true in some senses, one of the questions that came up right to my mind as you were introducing, you know, what is Tide left is the idea of, you know, how much software that is used by businesses is open source. Mm. Right. Right. So, It's, it's pretty, uh,
1: pretty incredible the degree to which open source is really the bulk of the software inside of just about any company or any organization, nonprofit or for profit. You know, I think it was, I think it was 2011. Actually, let me rewind further, right? Like open source was first defined in 1998. Hmm. It was sort of a, a definition of a, of a approach to software licensing. Uh, I had been around for a while already, you know, thanks to the, the software freedom movement. And so from 98, we get the open source phrase coined. And at that point, open source is treated as this like kind of radical thing. Yeah. A lot of people in business really didn't understand how something that you get for, you know, you don't have to pay for, can be useful or, or of quality or something that you want to incorporate into your, your software stack. You know, those are the days of open source being described by one well-known company as a cancer. And then <laughs> and then we get to 2011. And by then, I think it was Wired who said, open source is one. Wow! And then I think it was O'Reilly Media who a couple years later followed suit and said, yeah, open source is one. And so we've gone from this place where open source is like radical and 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 as a hack on the copyright system personally i believe it's still kind of radical and i love that yeah but it's totally mainstream now and i think the the numbers that i've seen through surveys done by the linux foundation is that 70 to 80% of the software inside any organization tends to be open source software wow which is just phenomenal can you think about how much any given company invests in paying their Their engineering talent to to build software. And if they're only if all that spend is going to like 30% of their stack, you know, there's just that much more value that they are not having to pay people to create, that they're getting the benefit of this stuff that, you know, I mean, no, no one company could ever hope to create the Linux operating system. Yeah. There's just no way. And yet it's this, this, this asset, this shared asset that we all have access to it's uh it's really pretty phenomenal so yeah it's really at the core the bulk of the software inside any given company is open source software and yet and yet we still have fairly systemic issues in which you know i mean there's the famous xkcd comic about uh you know the one the one package that's maintained by one or two two folks in tennessee (laughs) and uh you know it's it's funny but it's also true like yeah. there is software that is absolutely critical to the global infrastructure right that is maintained on a volunteer basis by vanishingly few individuals which is is mind boggling
0: yeah and you may not understand what thing is standing on what shoulders mm. you know and suddenly could create that collapse for (laughs) right for for your dependability so that's that's kind of what i think is a little crazy you know you 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 just in studying you know the language of python and and looking at you know like a requirements file it's like yeah yeah i can i can say this and this but like okay but what are all those things (laughs) it requires and then you know down all the way down to you know the core of python itself and making sure that it stays around yeah it's uh it's kind of wild to think about Maybe we can build on top of the risks that a company takes by, Hmm. you know, like why they considered it, you know, more risky or maybe in some ways still do like, it's, I guess maybe it seems less risky because there's so many, so many companies that are using it, but what are, what are uh, like, I I worked for a little while in, in credit risk management, but you know, in a way it was kind of connected to the risk management uh, offices in, inside of a, a big organization like a bank or a law firm mm-hmm. or something like that, uh, and I think about that uh, those kind of conversations. <laughs> so yeah,
1: yeah. So I, I think I mean first first let me let me put this out there. there. There's a lot to be said for as much as one can say about the risks introduced by using open source software. Yeah, they're really no greater than the risks introduced by you know writing your own proprietary software.
0: Sure, that's true. Right. So the people could I, leave too. Right. Absolutely. So I just want to, I want
1: to, I never want to fall into the the trap of like implying that open source software is somehow somehow more, more risky because it's not, it's not right. You know, but, but there, but, but one does need to adopt each piece of software with one's eyes wide open. And so when you're, when I look to, when I am considering adopting a given set of open source software. There are a few things that I'm looking for. I'm looking for, first and foremost, does it do the job that I'm looking for it to do? Right? That's like, does it meet my need? Right. Okay, Okay. great. It meets my need. Well, how active is that project? Yeah. Is it actively maintained? If a vulnerability is discovered, is there going to be somebody there who can address that vulnerability? And beyond that, are there new features that are going to be developed? Or is is it going to keep up with changing hardware architecture? Or is it going to evolve with the landscape? Or is it really a project that someone made and, and abandoned a few years ago? And it may well be that it is perfectly okay, given my use case, to adopt a piece of software that is no longer maintained. But more often than not, I'm looking for something that I can be fairly confident about going into the future by merit of seeing not just that it has one or more maintainers, but that it has an active set of contributors, and that the maintainers and contributors are a fairly diverse pool. So, and and, and what I mean by that is, okay, great, there are people in this project, that's sort of checkmark number one that I'm looking for, that it's active, it's alive. Right, okay. Check mark number two that I'm looking for is like, what, what is the composition of that maintainer and contributor base? If it is a single source or a, uh, a single source open source project or a, uh, a sort of open source vendor kind of thing where, okay, well, you know, Elasticsearch is great, but. I can tell that its governance model is not open. Mm. Um, and so I may not have much sway over the future of that project, over its features, over its licensing. And so, so I always also look for, is there a broad set of stakeholders represented here such that the future of the project is, is something that we as a community can weigh in on rather than being beholden to <laughs> the, the benevolent dictator, so to speak.
0: Right. Okay. That makes sense. So, right. So, okay. So, we've gone through
1: one, which is like, is it active? Two, who are the, the set of stakeholders and is it, is it uh, fairly diverse? Beyond that, number three, well, how is it actually being, how is it making its way from wherever it's being developed into my stack? I want to make sure that I am confident that each new release that comes out. Is something that I can trust. And I want to be confident that if something does go wrong, uh, not only are there people there to respond to it, but there's a responsible dec- disclosure process associated with that so that the security issues can be handled uh, discreetly up front uh, while it gets addressed, and then is broadly publicized when the solution has been implemented. Because that gives me assurance that. When something does go wrong, because something will go wrong, it's software, you know, proprietary <laughs> open source, something's going to go wrong. Right. I just want to know that there's a, a path there, a reliable, responsible path to, to resolution. So, so really it's like, is it active? Is it a diverse set of stakeholders? And, and does it have a, a security disclosure process? There are other things that personally I look for, like, For me, I look for a code of conduct as a, as a signal of the type of community and how intentional they are about building a a welcoming and productive community around that project. Those are key for me as well. So really, the, to get back to the core of your question, like what are the risks that a company takes on in adopting any piece of software, namely uh, a piece of open source software? Really, there's a, there's a bet that a company is making when adopting a piece of software that that software is going to be there for them today and tomorrow and that they can rely on it and that they can have some, some part as part of the user and contributor community for that project in ushering that project in the future. You know, I don't want to adopt a piece of software that I will worry about its, uh, whether it's been deprecated or its maintenance status. You know, I don't want to adopt a piece of software that I can't be confident is going to be there supported tomorrow after i've built a huge amount of my business on it because any piece of software we, we adopt we now have an existential relationship with that software right <laughs> proprietary or open source and so we better feel good about it
0: yeah that makes sense i mean there's so much to kind of dive into there one of the things i wanted to comment on is you're right that open source doesn't necessarily change 100 percent of those risks it, it uh in some ways it exposes uh some of them and kind of can show you some of those things that you can research yeah. more than you might be able to do with some existing companies. Like right. I use software for this podcast and I'm frustrated by this company because they've had almost a year and a half to develop versions of software that will run on the the new, you know, hardware that my computer can do. And right. it, it still doesn't. And they basically don't seem to like give me dates or any kind of plan of action. Uh, and it's like, uh, right, you know, and so I can't, I can't, you know, I'm using a six-year-old computer because it works, you know, and in, in works in this yeah. flow, but I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it's concerning because I made that investment and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a small investment in this case, it was yeah. monetary, not all the other factors that we just talked about. And I think about, the you know, using that term the bet. Right. <laughs> and that's maybe partly where something like you know, a service like you guys provide can kind of put can kind of back up that bet. <laughs> yeah. In a way. Absolutely. To kind of make sure that it like things kind of happen. And and I guess maybe we can discuss about, you know, maybe some of the the details there. Like I know that there are I guess maybe we should just start with, like, what are the types of projects that are supported? And, and then I thought about, like, kind of the idea of the catalog, which I didn't really get a chance to sure. get that idea so far. But, yeah, I think that, that you know, the, maybe we could kind of delve into the idea of, like, backing up that bet for a company.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, to on the way to answering the question of, like, what what does it look like to back up that bet, I, I realized there's something about... There's something about sort of assessing projects that was sort of implicit in what i was previously saying that i want to make more want to make more explicit yeah when we talk about open source we mean a lot of things okay part of open source as uh, part of open source's success is that the, the the phrase open source has come to be overloaded with meaning yeah right so okay so on the one hand uh, my day job i'm ecosystem strategy lead for tide lift on the other hand One of my, my, my most significant volunteer responsibility is I'm president of the open source initiative. You know, I'm, I'm, I've been on its board for, for five going on six years. And so I think a lot about open source, about the ecosystem. And naturally, uh, the open source initiative, its mission is primarily around stability and licensing and clarity and licensing. Okay. And so, so I think about open source in multiple different ways. On the one hand, the open source definition from, The open source initiative is a 10 point definition that if a piece of, if a license conforms to that definition, then it's an open source license. Mm, Okay. And then if you have a piece of software that that license is applied to, you have a piece of open source software. So at bare minimum, there's this legal definition of what open source is. Mm. But I think you'll find if you speak to, any number of of people in this industry and in this ecosystem you'll find that that really doesn't a project that has an open source license on it doesn't actually meet many people's personal definition of open source okay and so the way that i think about open source is there are layers of definition in there and the base layer is yes that license it is a precondition for something to be open source to have an open source license to be an open source software the next layer on top of that is is open governance, right? And so previously, I was talking about the diversity of stakeholders, and you know you might look at a, a piece of open source software that you get that a single company produces that's licensed open source, but really there's no governance infrastructure around it. It's not like Kubernetes or Django or Python where there are uh, where it's stewarded by a nonprofit organization. Hmm. And there are governance mechanisms and elections and formal processes by which new features or changes are considered. You know, so there's that open governance piece. I look at projects like Android, open source, uh, Android, and that is open source technically. It has an open source license, but it is not an open governance project. It is absolutely Google's project. And so there's the governance bit, there's the license, then there's the governance. And that last bit is the open collaboration. And this is sort of what, what you tend to expect from open source projects is that I can wander up and say, hey, I found a bug. Or, hey, <laughs> like, I would like to make a feature request. Right. And there's a sense that I can wander into your community and share information with you uh, and maybe even help build the project.
0: Right.
1: And so for most people, when we say open source, we mean all three of those things. We mean it's an under an open source license. There's open governance and that there's open collaboration as well. So the reason that I highlight all of this is that Tide Lift's work is to work with open source projects. And I mean, not just open source licensed projects, but projects that are open collaboration that aren't, you know, created by a single vendor. That are just a, a small community of people or sometimes a large community of people working on a project. Those are the projects that Tidelift is really trying to work with where, you know, whether it's in the JavaScript ecosystem or in the Python ecosystem or Go, we are trying to recruit maintainers in those ecosystems to provide them with guidance, with support, with Funding with money so that they can have their incentives a little more closely aligned with the incentives of their downstream users. Because so if I want to use a piece of software personally as a hobbyist, you know, I, I don't really need many guarantees out of that piece of software. I'm not building a business around it. But if I am building a business around it, I want to be confident about that software into the future. And so. Right. The way we can do that, especially when we have projects that are stewarded by a community of people who are largely, if not completely, volunteer, is to find a way to align our incentives by saying, Hey, you know what? Maybe maybe you wouldn't choose to create a security, uh, responsible security disclosure process on your own. Maybe you wouldn't choose to add signing keys or... You know, enroll in the reproducible PILD program on your own. Maybe that feels like extra work that isn't really edifying or enjoyable for you, but we all recognize it's important. And so let's pay you yeah. to do that work, right? I, I, I look at, I look at what's happening in the Python ecosystem as a particularly encouraging example in Python. Of course, we have the Python software foundation. So. A nonprofit that's there to uh, steward the community, steward the language, steward the trademarks, all of that. And in Python, you know, over the last few years, we've seen a number of, we've had a number of events that have really shaken many downstream users awake. You know, I think back to 2014 or 15 when the Heartbleed bug in OpenSSL was discovered, and and uh, you know, OpenSSL critical piece of, of the global infrastructure. And yet it was maintained by someone who really, by by like a sole, solo practitioner who wasn't being paid. And everybody's realized like how outrageous is it? Like how wonderful is it, first of all, that this person has been so generous to let us all use this software? Uh, you know, really like amazing how far that that one open source package has gone. But also how ridiculous is it that so much of global commerce relies on it, and yet this one person isn 't seeing a dime for it isn 't getting supported to make sure that that it 's actively maintained and, and, and taken care of and so yeah, after that, we had a lot of discourse around sustainability open source sustainability, and it 's a real it 's an important subject, also became a little bit of a buzzword where we all realized like, oh, this is not okay, we need to do something about this <laughs> yeah. and over the last few months, we've seen software supply chain attacks in the news from solar winds to just some weird research practices to a whole range of things, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think some organizations are really starting to get it. You know, we have foundations like the Python Software Foundation, like the Drupal Association, like Free Free BSD Foundation. Software Freedom Conservancy. We have these nonprofits that are sort of neutral stewards of some of this community infrastructure of many of these major open source projects. And they've been there for for quite some time. They are not new, but the degree to which their downstream users are beginning to support them is kind of new. What we've seen over the last year, one of the examples that I love going back to is the way Bloomberg has stepped up for the Python Software Foundation. Yeah. You know, Bloomberg, as uh, as an organization that exists in some highly regulated markets, really cares about managing their risk and about making sure that the ecosystem is healthy, both because it's the right thing and it's just good for business. And so what I found was that Bloomberg realized that their needs did not necessarily align With the priorities of the Python Software Foundation itself. Specifically, there's work that they wanted on the Python package index. And while that's work that Bloomberg wanted, the PSF has its own sense of priorities and rightly so. So what did Bloomberg do? Bloomberg threw down for what I understand is this the single largest sponsorship the Python Software Foundation has ever seen to pay for engineering time to get the features they need on the Python package index. And so this is a great example of like a company realizing we have these needs, but our incentives are not aligned. And so the company needs to really step up to make sure that its needs are met. And it does that by investing in the community infrastructure. Uh, and so by investing in the Python Software Foundation, not only does Bloomberg ultimately get what it needs, from the python package index but the whole ecosystem benefits from that which is just right. kind of a lovely consequence of, of you know being an investment in the commons that we all benefit from
0: yeah it seems like 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 you said there's a handful of them recently that have happened and it seems i, I hope it's a trend <laughs> me too it sure seems like it to me you know with wukashlonga becoming the yeah you know director of residence and, and working on you know this sort of backlog of PR issues and I mean it gets right back to that whole idea of these side projects and this volunteer base and and so forth things in that realm don't always move fast they right. always go in sort of fits and starts when people have the time and have the effort and oh it's summer I can <laughs> take a couple weeks off and mess with this or you know maybe a a company gives allocates a certain amount of time for people to work outside their normal daily tasks, and they decide that this is what is exciting to me and interesting to me right and scratching their own issues so i I think that's really fascinating and one of the things that you mentioned yeah. right at the beginning of that whole thing on like kind of defining open source yeah, you said there were like ten points right uh sort of like in, in the licensing and I don't want you to have to enumerate all of them I think that would be a little too much but maybe we could just you know name one of them so people can get an idea of like okay what does that mean
1: yeah sure so the the 10 points that of the open source definition
0: the the whole
1: aim of all 10 of them and you're right I will not go down all 10 because that would be exhausting for everybody <laughs> but the whole point is to ensure that all of us have the rights to use the software to study the software Hmm. to modify the software and to redistribute the software
0: okay yeah
1: and so every one of those points is geared towards making sure that those rights those those freedoms are preserved in the license now to be clear licenses are as much about responsibilities as they are about rights so depending on the license you pick uh okay you've got these these freedoms that these rights that the license gives you but depending on the license you might have a responsibility to provide attribution you might have a responsibility to uh share your cha- your modifications upstream with the project hmm, okay and uh and so those those responsibilities vary from license to license but but the bottom line is is that any piece of open source software is something that you can be confident You can use, study, modify and redistribute without having to go and ask permission for it, without having to get explicit written consent to do those things. And that's, that's kind of the beauty is that with open source software, it is just, and I'm not, I'm not one who really loves the word innovation. I feel like it gets thrown around a whole lot to to the point that it's a bit cheapened, but, but the reality is that we have this growing this growing commons of open source software that all of us are able to use. And by sharing these developments with each other, we can move further faster and avoid reinventing the wheel. You know, I don't need to reinvent the operating system when I want to go create a new service because it's already there.
0: Yeah. In the case of, you know, something like Linux um, and, and the different varieties there that totally makes sense. Right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> creating an operating system seems like a, a level of task that is even maybe further than like creating a, a language. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. No, nothing. Yeah. It's not for me. This episode is brought to you by Sentry, helping developers see issues that matter, solve those issues in minutes, and learn insights to keep their applications running at peak performance. What can you expect from Sentry? You get actionable insights and full context so you can fix your apps errors and optimize its performance. You get performance monitoring engineering managers and developers now have a single tool to trace Python performance issues back to poor performing API calls, as well as surface all related code errors. And with Sentry's error monitoring, you can understand the important events that led to each Python exception, be it SQL queries, debug logs, network requests, or past errors spend less time fixing bugs, and more time building features. You can learn more at sentry.io slash 4FOR slash Python and sign up with the promo code REALPYTHON, that's all caps REALPYTHON, to get three free months of Sentry's team plan. One of the things that you touched on there also is this idea of companies coming forward and having these needs and wanting to contribute in this case, they're con- contributing to a, a nonprofit, but in some cases, if a company wants to contribute to a particular project that that they're they're interested in, and maybe that project is not organized in that way they're not a right. a nonprofit and, and they're not a you know maybe it's individuals you know or maybe it's some other kind of collective thing yeah. is, is there things that get in the way of them being able to even think about how they could contribute to them.
1: Right, right. I'm so glad you asked that because this touches on something we were talking about a little bit before the show. So I've talked about these nonprofits, these foundations that, that steward uh, open source projects for us all. And uh, I've left open the question of like, well, why do they exist? Why do we even need them? And so the reason that we have, let me start with like why we have what, what are broadly referred to as open source foundations. They are organizations that serve as a neutral, a neutral home for, for open source projects. And if I want to take, take Git, for example, you know, Git is a, a project that calls the Software Freedom Conservancy home. And because Git calls the Software Freedom Conservancy home, that means that there are some guarantees I have about its governance, about the way that it's licensed about the way that that community might be managed that provides stability and predictability for the use of that software going into the future. So first and foremost, the reason that we have these foundations is that they provide that neutral territory for multiple stakeholders to come together around a shared interest in a project. So it could be that me as a hobbyist is interested in Git, and so I'm contributing, and, and that those contributions are are uh, being stewarded by Software Freedom Conservancy. It could be that Google is contributing to Git. In fact, they're one of the biggest contributors to Git. And those contributions are also being stewarded by Software Freedom Conservancy. And so by having this nonprofit be the steward, the neutral arbiter between stakeholders like me, the hobbyist, or me, the startup, and... Google the Fortune 500, you know, megacorp <laughs> right. means that there's a level playing field that we can operate within. There's some predictability and, and how we can engage with each other in that environment. So first is it just provides this neutral home. And that's very important. If you look at the Linux Foundation, one of the, one of the biggest things, the values that the Linux Foundation provides is a space where for profits can collaborate with each other on projects that, uh, if they collaborated with them without those projects being assigned to a, a nonprofit, a neutral home, then there might be issues about uh, like anti competitive behavior and uh, antitrust type things. Yeah. Uh, but by having this neutral territory where we all agree, like, okay, no, these are shared assets and they belong to this other organization. And that is the organization that we commune and contribute around, it, it takes that complexity, that, that risk out of the equation. So one is the neutral home. The other thing is that it's actually just hard to pay open source maintainers. If, if I, so for instance, I created the, the feeds meetup Drupal module umpteen years ago, and I'm not gonna pretend that that's a particularly meaningful project uh, or one that's even actively maintained, but let's pretend that it's a big deal. Let's pretend that it's meaningful. If suddenly, lots of people are starting to rely on my project, and they have needs of the project, and they have bugs that they're reporting, they have features they're requesting, and chances are, and this is true of many open source projects, chances are I created that project to scratch my own itch, to solve a problem, Great. slapped an open source license on it because I believe in open source, I believe in, in sharing the probability is that I did not necessarily bargain for all of the additional responsibility that comes with open sourcing something, right?
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, totally.
1: Like, I, I like to, I, I have this concept of like accidental leadership or the accidental maintainer, which is where, okay, I create this project, throw it over the wall. It's now on GitHub or GitLab or whatever. Uh, y'all can use it. I didn't necessarily expect to become a community manager. Or a release manager, or a security researcher, but suddenly there are all these additional responsibilities that come with being a maintainer, and and that starts typically with a volunteer, with somebody who has scratched their own itch. And so, right. if I've just created this project in my free time and now I've got all these these large companies with needs who are asking things of me, well, I don't have. I, I'm. They're not paying me to do that work. They need the work done, but they're not paying me to do it. Right. And so at some point, it's like, okay, well, you need to pay me for my time so that I can do this because it doesn't cost me nothing. And so by having these foundations and projects that belong to foundations, those foundations provide things like a bank account, accounts receivable and accounts payable. (laughs) Right. Transparency for how funds are used. Expense policies, so that you know we can be confident the funds are, are used wisely. And so, a company typically cannot cut a check to me, random number five, for your for my meetup, <laughs> for your right? Meetup software if that, that doesn't yeah. that doesn't work. I don't, you know, for anybody who hasn't had to deal with pro- corporate procurement plot processes, they're very fortunate because they're awful. But it really prevents companies from paying me, hobbyist maintainer of project and writing me a check that I deposit in my personal bank account. But chances are Software Freedom Conservancy or the Linux Foundation is already in their procurement system, and they can pay them. Mm. And then those organizations can then in turn pay me. So these organizations pay provide that neutral territory. They provide way to steward financial resources. They will hold the trademarks, the copyrights, and they also will provide legal support for for, for projects. So typically, when someone creates an open source project, there's sort of a, this isn't true of all open source projects, but of projects that get adopted uh, and start seeing serious use, typically those projects will go from complete hobbyist to, okay, I'm gonna go ahead and set up a profile for my project on Open Collective, which is you know kind of a, a lightweight uh, fiscal sponsor it is sort of a a really great option on the way to transferring my project to a foundation because then it gives me a way to receive funds and and a way to use them transparently. And then, you know, it may be like, if this project just gets bigger and bigger and uh, my downstream users need more guarantees about the project or I need, say, legal support or additional support so that I can host conferences around my event or meetups around my event, well, it might be that it's time for me to look at Trading up to a more hands-on, more full-service foundation, and so there's a whole spectrum of options for projects here, from the the lightweight open collective model to the you know you got the Apache Software Foundation, the Python Software Foundation, Software Freedom Conservancy, and they all have more services and more opinions about how projects should be run. And so that is why those those organizations exist. And Many of the people that Tidelift, many of the maintainers that Tidelift is working with are, are people who are somewhere along that path. Yeah. Where there's this open source project they've created. People are starting to use it. People are starting to rely on it. And suddenly there's this need to do additional work, like implement a, a responsible security disclosure process or provide assurances that yes, no, really, this is the license that it says it is. And we work with them to, to pay them to do that work so that the downstream users have what they need and the maintainers are getting paid to do the work that, you know, they might not want to do otherwise because it's just doesn't bring them joy and fair enough too.
0: So I thought about, you mentioned this earlier as a list of like things that an organization like Tidelift provides. In you know, monetary is one of them, obviously, and, and we talked about the right. concept of of a lifter. But then it sounds like you are also involved in providing uh, forms of guidance as far as licensing yeah. um, or other things. There, maybe we can elaborate on some of the other types of like benefits or things that you you provide. That's not monetary.
1: Sure, sure. So we will. We we do provide guidance on, for instance implementing a code of conduct for open source projects. We do provide guidance in uh, implementing a responsible security disclosure process. And I should say, I, I, I've said that phrase a few times now. What, what that really means is that there is a dedicated email address to receive security reports discreetly so that if somebody finds a zero-day vulnerability uh, in my project, that the, they don't have to broadcast that to the wide world. Uh, first thing that there is a place where they can report that
0: right it shows up in a right. PR or something. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. And like, okay, great, now
1: there's a zero day that everybody can exploit while we still haven't even had a chance to fix it.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: So so Tide Lift both provides guidance on, on how to do that, but also for projects that 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 don't really have the wherewithal to run that process on their own, we will run it for them. You know, we will we will receive the reports. We will coordinate with the maintainer. We will get the C V E number. We will work with the maintainer through to resolution, to providing security guidance, who it affects and in what cases does it matter, and what is the upgrade path or the resolution path. So we'll we'll work with them on all those things, because those are assurances that downstream users uh, really want to make sure that their risk is well managed.
0: Yeah. Do you help with, if the person just kind of puts their hands up and says, "Uh, I don't know how to... Do this, and you know, are there human resources, uh, other um, maintainer, you know, people that are interested in in helping out in those kind of projects that you can connect them with?
1: Yeah. So, you know, one of the benefits of doing this work is it is, it is extremely relationship oriented, and we work across, across all of the ecosystems, and and so it is. You know, I, I can't say that I've seen this happen a whole lot in practice but it is true to say that if somebody came to us and said, "Hey, what's what's the standard practice for this or what's the best practice for doing this in this corner of the ecosystem?" well, we we know who to talk to. And you know, we will we will provide as much guidance as, as we can ourselves, but but also, you know, glad to to chase those questions down and and find answers for people and and connect people across ecosystems to make sure that we are Comparing notes. One of the things I find, having been sort of a meta community person for the last seven years working across the ecosystems, that there's so much encouraging work happening in like pretty much every little corner of the ecosystem, but there's not a whole lot of cross pollination. Mm. And so, you know, when somebody comes to me with a question, I'm always eager to show them a window into how things are done elsewhere so that we can learn from each other.
0: When you mention the term ecosystem in, in languages, as as, yeah, I'm guessing for the open source initiative that would be across like a huge, vast amount of them. Yeah. In the similar way for Tidelift, like I think you enumerated, you know, everything from Go and and Python and and JavaScript and and so forth. It's it sounds like it's pretty vast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is
1: a it is a wide world.
0: Yeah, uh, that's that's for sure. Okay, cool. That's
1: for sure. You know. One of the things that's that's on my mind is that so Tide Lift to this date works on partnering with maintainers, you know, the people we call lifters once they're contracted with us to provide assurances, get the code of conduct in place, to get the security risk disclosure process in place. But we're looking to do a lot more of that, and this this is what this is what I'm really passionate about is we're looking to You know, not just work with individual maintainers, but we also want to work with the foundations. And we have begun to work with the foundations to make sure they're getting income for, for the projects that are being used. And we want to, we want to look at what we can do uh, on top of the monetary support that, that absolutely needs to be there to make sure incentives are aligned. Because we, we just completed a, our first annual maintainer survey. Yeah, Back in May, and I think we, we published the results in June. And you know, there are some results, there are some findings that are fairly unsurprising. You know, about half of maintainers get paid nothing for their work. You know, open source maintainers often find the work stressful, thankless, and financially unrewarding. These are, these are kind of unsurprising. But there were things in there that I was really encouraged to see, because we were also looking to what other kinds of support are maintainers looking for? So I I, haven't been in this space. I've got some instincts, instincts, but, you know, really want to hear it from from maintainers themselves. And, you know, one one common theme was that maintainers want help with documentation. Yeah. Right. Just because I know how to write effective software doesn't mean that I know how to write effective documentation. In fact, those are two very different skill sets and it also means that I don't necessarily know how to market a project or build a community. There are all these additional skills that are needed to grow a healthy co- community around an open source project and and so what we're looking to do is see what how can we partner with maintainers directly, you know, both the lifters we work with and the broader ecosystem to raise the level of quality in their documentation. You know, can we improve their the the user experience? Can we improve the contributor experience? Can we help you know, make the documentation not just accurate but up to date and uh, easy to navigate. And so there are lots of there are lots of things that we're we're starting to explore because it's just clear that we're we're asking a lot of maintainers, and maintainers can't do everything. <laughs> yeah, and so on top of paying them, like, okay, well, can we work with people? Can we work with technical writers or community managers? To help them with these other areas as well. So it's early days for that, but we're, we're thinking really broadly about how to how to best support open source maintainers.
0: I could imagine that just having that extra person on something like documentation would change how the project looks to other, you know, potential people that want to contribute mm-hmm. or be part of the project, not only, you know, the, the end users, but like it would make the project have such a different sort of, you know, cosmetic lift, you know, <laughs> to, to like bring it to a point where like, oh, yeah, like you said, is this a serious project, <laughs> you know, like, it, you know, what's going on right. with it? it? Does it look like it's, you know, maintained and you know, did they do anything with documentation and so forth? So I, I feel like that could be this weird, Barrier to entry for a lot of people to to even consider getting involved in something like that, so I think that's huge
1: yeah i I, I feel really strongly about about this direction and, and thinking very broadly about the kinds of supports that we're providing for maintainers because I, I think there's there's so much potential uh, you know i mean just just to keep on the theme of documentation the documentation is a force multiplier like not only does it help make the 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 right first impression right but you know for every answer you put in your documentation you know that might save you 10 100 issues being filed down the line right so it's really can be can have a a huge huge impact there
0: and you're stopping misinformation happening outside of that zone too yeah absolutely This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. It covers a powerful concept in Python. It's titled Python Inner Functions. The course is based on a RealPython article by Leodonis Pozo Ramos. And in the course, instructor Christopher Trudeau takes you through how to provide encapsulation and hide your functions from external access, how to write helper functions to facilitate code reuse, how to create closure factory functions that retain state between calls, and how to code decorator functions that add behavior to existing functions. I think it's a worthy investment of your time to learn how to nest functions inside of other functions. It's a feature of Python you will see more often the further that you explore the language. Real Python video courses are broken into easily consumable sections, and where needed, include code examples for the techniques shown. All lessons have a transcript, including closed captions check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the newly enhanced search tool on realpython.com. One of the things I looked at, I looked at a couple of the surveys just to kind of get an idea of what they were in. And it went from a terminology. I don't know which one was first, but it was like a managed versus a professional open source project. And I didn't know if those were different. Um, or if it's just a, a change in in you know kind of labeling and how they're thought of. Yeah.
1: So I, I you know, I I confess I don't uh, I have not thought a whole lot about what it means to be a professional open source project. But certainly when I think about managed open source, yeah, I think about I think about projects that are working with organizations to to provide uh, assurances to their downstream users. So. That might mean working with Tidelift to provide guarantees about security and licensing and things like that. That might mean you know, focusing on really improving, uh, professionalizing the the continuous integration and deployment pipeline uh, so that the results, the packages get bundled up and are readily consumable with a great deal of information that downstream users are looking for about provenance or out licensing and whatnot so managed managed open source i really just think about like what i think when someone when i think about managed open source aside from tidelift i think about red hat yeah right um and i think about the the way that red hat provides support for really a a massive cross-section of the open source ecosystem whether or not they're the ones who are creating that software themselves and so really that that's that's the that's the pitch for tide lift is work with tide lift who can help you pr- help provide managed open source help you with your open source software supply chain give you greater confidence in the software that you're using and the way that we're achieving that is by paying maintainers by paying foundations and aligning incentives so that you don't need to go to these projects and say, "Hey, I really need you to have a responsible disclosure process uh, before we can use this software because we've already done that work for
0: you, yeah, that's nice, <laughs> yeah, I think so too. so I have these weekly questions, and the first one is what's something that you're excited about in the world of Python, and it could be like an event, a book package editor, what have you yeah well i I
1: have I've been very excited in Python to to see how much is being invested in paying staff to support the python ecosystem yeah you know the the number of the the amount of headcount that's growing that is paid to work on supporting the python ecosystem is just such a fabulous example for the whole for the whole of, of software i know that might be a little niche for some but that's the kind of thing that gets me really excited
0: yeah no i i yeah, it's been like a theme <laughs> recurring here and I think that's great. Yeah. And the next one is it doesn't have to be python specific but what do you want to learn next? Oh. So I've got this I've 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 got this long
1: long held desire to to go on sabbatical and take some time to to research some of the uh some of the social sciences that underpin our industry. Hmm. You know, I came up as a community manager and uh, and And the community manager profession is is a wonderful and fascinating space, and yet while I was in that space i couldn 't help but feel like we were missing out like we were reinventing things uh, because you know community is as old as as old as time as old as as humans are right, right? we are community building creatures and uh, and there 's a great deal of of research and and work that 's been put in there, and I would just love. <laughs> love to have the time to just ground myself in the work that's been done for us so that we're reinventing the wheel a little less often.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> all the social experiments and, and communities have, have proceeded. I'm sure there's lots of uh, interesting things to study there. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, the last point is, uh, do you have anything you want to shout out or you want to? call out specifically.
1: Yes. Yes, I love these questions. One of the things that I'm really passionate about is is this ecosystem, this notion of ecosystem where we have all these different stakeholders of various shapes and sizes. We have the downstream users and the large corporate users. We have the maintainers, we have hobbyists. We have these just there's so many different stakeholders in this space. Yeah. And And I got to say, as somebody, I, I spent maybe 15 years in this industry before I even realized that there was a whole world of nonprofit open source foundations that really undergirded the whole thing. And as open source continues to be used to even greater and greater degrees, these nonprofit foundations are carrying a greater and greater load. And so one is, and and I call those foundations hidden infrastructure. Yeah. Because for the developer working in their IDE, working on the command line, you know, you don't really think about those foundations and, and yet they're so, so important. And so my ask, my ask of everybody is, uh, if you have built a career in this industry, if you built a career on Python, please, please go to python.org and become a supporting member. I think it's like 99 bucks a year and just pay into that communal infrastructure. Better yet, better yet, make sure that your employer who is using Python is a sponsor of the Python Software Foundation because this hidden infrastructure, if it remains hidden and is not well supported, well, we all suffer for that. Yeah. And so as it grows in importance and use, it's just so important that all of us do our part to make sure that those, those organizations are well-supported so that they can continue looking after the projects that, that we love.
0: Totally agreed. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And if you're interested, do you want to share your social connection information?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, I am on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram at either Josh Simmons or blue somewhere uh, you can also find me at joshsimmons.com.
0: okay great well josh thanks so much for coming on the show this has been a fascinating and really awesome talk yeah thank you so much for having me i had a lot of fun all right thanks this episode was brought to you by Sentry, helping developers see issues that matter solve those issues in minutes and learn insights to keep their applications running at peak performance you can learn more at Sentry.io slash 4FOR slash Python. And sign up with the promo code REALPYTHON, that's all caps REALPYTHON, to get three free months of Sentry's team plan. I want to thank Josh Simmons for coming on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python Podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python Podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.